Good morning, Grace Presbyterian Church. Um, so thankful that we can uh, have this time. It's definitely different than normal. Uh, this is not only virtual, but it's really our first uh, truly virtual. That is, each piece had to be videoed by itself. And uh, so thankful for the help we've had with that. Um, for, for me, it's different because I'm looking only at a camera. There is nobody else in this room. Uh, Brent Pertit's helping me. He's had COVID, so we're safe. As you probably know by now, I've been exposed, um, and so our son's in isolation, but we are quarantining, but thought uh, this is safe, and also that to not meet together uh, would be best. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're also finishing, really, our series on Advent. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent, and we've been looking at the, the uh, reality that in Isaiah, there's a prophecy that God will dwell among his people, a hope for a weary world, which we obviously can relate with right now. And then we saw the next week of Advent that that reality came into fruition through Jesus, the incarnation, and that he's not only fully God, which he is, but the mystery that he's also fully human. And the writer of Hebrews explains that though sinless, Jesus took on our sin. And it's, it would be tempting to think he can't fully relate because we sin and he didn't. But actually, the opposite is true. He took on our sin and faced the wrath of his father, which we will never face. So in, in that sense, he's, he's dealt with more of the effects of sin than we ever will. And so he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Then last week, we went a step further into the way that works now that he's ascended into heaven he sends his Holy Spirit. In John, he tells us he will not leave us as orphans. We studied Galatians, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And in that reality, we are adopted as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. So that's an amazing reality. And then this morning, we'll look at really the third sphere of what it means that God dwells with us. And that is that he dwells with us as a unity, as a people, as a body of Christ, also referred to often as the bride of Christ. And we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians in a few moments, but I just want you to see that, that flow uh, from the Gospels into Acts, where when Jesus um, ascends in the beginning of Acts, he says, wait for my counselor, my spirit, who will come upon you. And that spirit does come upon the individuals that are Christians there, the disciples. But it also comes upon them as a corporate body, and it, we call that Pentecost, and that's where the church exploded, not only in number, but in fruitfulness and in loving and in community. Um, and then that sparks the book of Acts into a missionary book. Many people call it the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Spirit, but you could also refer to it as the Acts of the Church. And in chapter 18, Paul comes to this really strange, scary town called Corinth, and he's fearful. And in one of the few places where Jesus in Acts is actually speaking to, to Paul or to somebody there, he says in chapter 18, 9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. And listen to what he says. I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. So Paul was afraid. And then he says this, I have many in the city who are my people. So Jesus is thinking there in terms of the fact that there is a church, a particular real church in Corinth who is waiting for the gospel. And, and that's exactly what we're doing here in Stillwater. We are a particular church, 
But our church isn't just who's already here in our membership, but those who may join us and come to Christ um, in, the, in the near future and the far future. And yet Corinth is a fascinating city. I chose this text for this morning because uh, they're the most like Americans uh, that you can find in the Bible. The, Corinth is a very young church. Um, there's no like landed gentry. They don't have the Rockefellers and these, you know, these lineages of money. They all sort of show up like a boomtown. It's only about 100 years old at the time we come to it. And <clears throat> there's just all sorts of evil and, and cosmopolitanism and, and different kinds of people, etc. And yet the gospel flourishes and there is a church. And in this letter, I mean, what we're finding is a group of people that are expressing their radical individualism. Right there, in the very beginning, they're, they're, Paul's addressing that they would say, "I don't follow this person; I follow that person," and and he's just addressing their rugged individualism. And yet, he's calling them to be the body of Christ, to to act as the church, and that's what we're going to see. Um, in chapter eleven, he's just expressed extreme frustration over the way they're celebrating the supper, like in cliques. You know, they're going off, they're rich by themselves, and the poor not even getting anything. And he just, he, he's really bothered by that. And then in our chapter 12, he's actually addressing, as he does much of the letter, a particular question. The question they've asked him about spiritual gifts. In verse 1, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And then listen to ch- verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. And then there's a little bit of a, a reminder here. However, you were led. So before he jumps into the topic, he's reminding them, you need humility. Uh, You are easily swayed in your past and even in your present expression of your faith. So then we come to our verse, starting in verse 12, our passage. I believe it's on the screen behind me now. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body Though many are, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that he lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Very important verse right here in 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? These are rhetorical questions. And in verse 31, he says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am noisy, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as, I, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. This is the word of our Lord. Father, we praise you that you have given us an expression of you in the church. But Lord, we confess that... Um, it's also, in some ways, the hardest community because in the church, we see weakness. We feel frailty. We desire to hide and run and isolate. And yet it's exactly in the medium of being known and knowing in a church body filled with your spirit that we can grow. It's the primary way you call us to growth. Help us to see that this morning. Amen. Um, my story, uh, I, I, you know, we live in a country that has an idol of rugged individualism. And that's really a major part of my story. I think all of us may relate to that. But I was raised in a setting. My dad and mother were divorced. Um, but I kind of looked to him. And um, we weren't extremely close. But he had influence early on. And one of the things he really loved was just this idea of positive thinking and uh, a pulling yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. He even became a, a somewhat of a, a speaker on, you know, positive thinking. And the effect that had on me, as, as well as some of the struggles in my own upbringing, were that I, I began to fantasize and desire and long for a future of complete control where I was in complete positive control of my emotions, my surroundings. And I remember at a young age desperately wanting to think of a career path uh, that would give me wealth and um, autonomy and control. Ironically, the one I chose or I thought I wanted to be was a, a cartoonist, uh, you know, Charles Schultz of Peanuts. You know, he could make $100 million a year. You could sit in your room by yourself and draw. It, it just sounded perfect. 
But I, I know now what I was longing for was complete control. Uh, there also, my dad, you know, pushed things on me like Anthony Robbins and just this sort of like self-help mentality. And, and that was a big part of, I think, who I was and my worldview. And then when I became a Christian, or I rather walked with Christ starting my senior year, I think uh, it was community, it was uh, mentors, it was so many things that helped me. But I still really longed for those expressions. I wanted to be a great individual Christian. I wasn't sure what it would look like to be part of the body, but I knew if I could have a great quiet time, if I could practice certain disciplines, that became sort of the burning desire. And what I found in that process was um, really a weakness with community. It was the God, it was the ministry of sonship that I've talked much about where I remember thinking, this is the new iteration. This is the thing. If I can understand justification and adoption, I didn't say this, but this was what's going on in the background. I will be a wonderful individual Christian person. I'll feel clean and whole and do good things. Yet the, the discipleship program, the, the videos, the um, questions kept coming back to like conflict with people and, and loving your neighbor well. And in fact, it, t- for, it took me a while to realize it was actually designed for mission teams and stateside pastoral teams that were in major conflict. Uh, people leaving the mission field. They've raised all their money. They've given up everything. They've learned a language. And they leave primarily out of conflict. And so Jack Miller really pressed the fact that we have this gospel that should heal us of that. And then for me, I remember realizing I need to, and I'm still learning, I need to understand what does it mean to be part of the church? And I have to confess, I think we can all agree on some level, there's a part of us, this is part of our fallenness, that really thinks when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Uh, I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curl in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift and move and, and select until I find my tribe. And yet what we see in 1 Corinthians, we see this group of people Uh, this church, who are radical individualists, having all sorts of questions, and yet Paul's number one heart for them is that they would become one body and exhibiting primarily love. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, The mysteries we've been talking about then with Jesus' humanity, there's a mystery. How is he fully God and fully man? We have to always go back to that mystery the last week's mystery was how are we both individuals and yet said to be in union with Christ, this mystical union. And again, that's a mystery. Well, it's hard to get our mind around. I would add this week's mystery is uh, how are we said to be individual Christians and yet we're part of a, a, a body and in so many ways we are only as good as the body we're a part of and then the body itself is only as good as we are. There's just this mystery of the church that is all through the Bible and especially the New Testament because almost all of these epistles are written to a particular congregation, right? So what we're going to look at is the church and the, the fallen tendencies to be individuals, but what we're going to see is Jesus works primarily through his church. So we, Christians, our primary passion is to become integral parts of the local body. And that's going to sound foreign to us. It should sound, I know it does, that your greatest expression of Christianity is your involvement at this local church or whatever local church you are drawn to. So the two things we're going to look at is the design of the church and the power for the church. 
So the design of the church. Uh, in the Bible, in, in the beginning of the Bible, a triune, intimately related Godhead says, let us make man in our image, and they create. Uh, they create, the, the Lord, the God, God Yahweh, creates the, the heavens and the earth, and his greatest creation is mankind. In fact, that's the one thing that is very good. But there is something in the garden that's not good. And I asked someone early in the week, and they said, you mean the fruit? Okay, so there's two things. <laughs> there's a tree that you're not supposed to eat. We know that. But before the fall, when everything was still perfect, it was not good for man to be alone. Now, obviously that includes a wife, but it includes children and community and offspring. And so the aim in the garden was a community. And that, of course, is the entire arc of all the Bible is a longing that one day, someday, we're going to be part of an integral, uh, connected community in heaven. We talked about the feast not long ago, but we're going we're gonna to be with the church, the city of God in heaven. In fact, Paul alludes to that when he says, now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face-to-face, we'll know not only Jesus face-to-face in heaven, but we'll know each other more intimately. So the two things we're going to look at for the design, because we're designed for community, is that you need the body, you need the church, and the church needs you. Uh, You need the church. In chapter uh, 12, verse 21, Paul says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Just a lot of irony there. Firstly, an eye not wanting a hand is obviously ridiculous. An eye seeing, hey, I want that candy bar. I'm going to need a hand, right? I need something to pick it up. So it's an absurdity that makes you go, oh, my goodness, of course. But I find it even more ironic that an eye can't speak. So for the eye to look at the hand and say, I don't need you, but I do need a mouth to sort of partner up with me for a few moments to tell you I don't need you. I mean, it's just this irony that you, you do need each other. We need the body. Um, so often we act like we don't need anything. We've got it all together. Uh, I don't need even a church. I'll just go read my Bible by myself. Oh, really? Where did you get that Bible? Right? I mean, God used an apostle. Right? God used um, great tongue masters to translate it into your own language. And get it into your hands. Most likely, when you go off by yourself and have your own individual expression of Christianity apart from the church, what are you doing? You're reading, maybe I'm going to listen to a preacher online who is supported by a local congregation. I mean, the point is, no matter how much we try to disengage, we find that we absolutely need people. Now, it's fascinating when science catches up to um, the Bible, and this happens, I talk about attachment theory, but Uh, The fact that infants have to have physical closeness to thrive, uh, which is scientific. And in the 50s, before that was fully understood, and yet germ theory had become obviously very understood, and maybe even earlier in the 1900s, a lot of times at hospitals, the babies that were sick had to not only go away from the parents, but even away from the caregivers for the most part. And when the caregivers would come near them, they would be just completely... Uh, clothed in their in their uh, medical uh, garments, and they saw chill infants actually not only not do well but die from this lack of touch, and the whole medical community has rethought that scientifically, and th- that the point there is we're designed for connection from a very early age, 
and we're designed to be connected to our Father. But according to, to Paul here, we're designed to be connected to the people around us. We are, we are designed for that. And yet when we don't do that, what we do is we tribalize. We say, you know what, I'm fine with being connected to people, but I just want to be around eyeballs. I'm an eyeball, I want eyeballs. And that's tribalization. And so what we end up is a jar of eyeballs that are useless. And that's what really happens in a culture like ours and like Corinth, but even more so with modernity, that we are able to like sequester and find our people and not be challenged and not have full expression of the body. And we become isolated and lonely. And what we now know is depression and, and anxiety and all of these indicators rise up, even leading to suicide ri- rising up. We need the body. Now, the body also needs you, right? The body needs the individual. Uh, a few verses earlier in 15, Paul says this, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It's a little bit different than what we just read. Here, it's almost like pity. It's like, ah, I, I don't belong, right? And then Paul follows that up by saying, that would not make any, it any less a part of the body. I'm in verse 15. In other words, just saying it doesn't make it true. The body absolutely needs every single member, right? Um, the more unimportant you feel, the more disengaged you think you are, I would argue the more you're absolutely needed because something has happened in your heart but also in the, in the church's life that has made you feel that way and yet the reality is if we are operating according to this passage in all of scripture, every part will see their value. Uh, I, I'm often fascinated by the fact that, you know, you watch football and they, they, they show a, a player on the sideline, a 350-pound lineman, and he's not going to play today. He's injured his toe. And, in fact, the other day, Grace and my, sport, you know, my bigger sports-watching fan was like, Dad, how does that work? I mean, why would a toe bring you out? And it's just this reality that we really kind of need our toe. <laughs> you, and, and the body part that matters the most to you at any moment is the one you're missing. You ask someone who's lost eyesight how proud they are of other parts of their body, and the majority of their thinking is going to be, I really wish I could see. And that man on the sideline whose toes hurt and he can't play is thinking, not, but my biceps are awesome. If you could see my deltoids, he's thinking, I really wish my toe were healed. We miss you when you're not here. So Paul is driving home this point that the church is made up of members, but those members work in orchestra with, through the power of the spirit, the, the mystery we can't grasp to make us one people, one body. And it works in such a way that uh, in verse 26, I highlighted it when I read the passage. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice. There is something so beautiful in that promise that my prayer for 2021 at Grace is that we begin to taste just a piece of what it means to really come together. Uh, I'm going to say something that sounds like I'm boasting, but I have the best church attendance of all of us because I have to be here. But I'll tell you something I've noticed. I don't think I've ever seen the same church twice, right? It's just every week it feels different. And um, that's because of schedules, and I'm talking pre-pandemic. And again, this isn't to shame you, but this t- the context of these verses is worship. In 11, he's talking about 
uh, the Lord's Supper. Now he's talking about spiritual gifts. In 14, he explains how the ones that are to be desired are to edify the body. And finally, he talks about orderly worship. Paul is saying we, yes, we'll have private and smaller groups of expression of the church, but also what we are as a body coming together has infinite power for us that the Spirit delivers to us, and we need to be a part of that. So that's point number one, but the question now is like, where does the power come? What drives the church? And Paul begins to hint at that at the end of 12 when he says, um, you know, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And that feels like he's contradicting himself. Now remember, a gift is not who you are in the body, right? We don't, I don't think we're supposed to determine am I an eye or an ear or a hand. We are to look for our gifting, but he's saying no matter what body part you are, you can pray that the Lord would bring different giftings to you or higher gifts. And one of those higher gifts we're going to see in a few moments are the ones that are not selfish. They all wanted to speak in tongues. And Paul is very clear in chapter 14 how selfish that is. The higher gifts are the ones that bring glory and honor to the whole community. But he says, let me show you how you'll get there. What's the higher way? And then we come to chapter 13, the way of love. These are very famous verses. Right, the first three verses just basically make the point. I don't care, like, what gift you have, what abilities you have, what reputation you have, what amazing things for Jesus you've done. Without love, he says really three things. A, you're harmful, right, in verse 1. That is, uh, your tongues, apart from love, are clinging symbols. They hurt people. So our giftings, apart from love, can actually harm. But also... They mean um, that we're basically, we don't have anything. We're nothing in and of ourselves without love. And then the third point he makes in those first three verses is also we gain nothing. In other words, when we express our gifting through love, there's actually gain for the body of Christ and for the kingdom, which obviously blesses, <coughs> blesses us as well. <coughs> the next verses, four through seven, Paul are probably the more famous Paul's describing love, and it's patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's, um, where was I? It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth, right? It, these are, the, the fascinating reality of these verses is, they wake you up. They're like smelling salts. It, it makes us all go, okay, if, if point number one is I need to be in the community and the com community needs me, point number two is I need a radical shift of outlook because I've always thought these verses were about marriage, but they're about your involvement with the people in this body. Notice it's patient. It's kind. Uh, I'm not going to notice that I'm patient if I'm not tempted to be impatient, if there's not a situation that's frustrating. Again, so often we try to curate our lives to never face frustration. And what the body of Christ, what the, what the church requires is, gonna, is that you will face people that are not only different from you, which can be frustrating, but they're also harmful. And you're going to need to have patience and kindness in those moments. You're going to not envy them and you're not going to boast about yourself. Um, these, are the, the, these are the fruits of the spirit dwelling in the body. Now, uh, he does mention the higher gifts. So I want to talk about that. We're getting 
somewhat close to the end. I really want to not go too long. But the ending is where the power is. So please stay with me. Um, I'm fascinated because in 14 he says, pursue love. His, his point is, like, that is where the power is. And when you have love, when you're pursuing it, and the, that is the spirit dwelling in you, both individually and, of course, corporately, uh, where I'm repenting of my sin. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. When I'm, when I'm aware that my identity is in Christ, not in myself. Um, when I'm filled up in his um, love for me, not other people's love for me. I'm pursuing love. And then I'm going to begin to love the people around me. And then he says, desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Prophecy is a very misunderstood uh, gift. We think too much of like fortune telling. I think in the modern era at certain charismatic places I knew in college, people would come back from some gathering and say, hey, that guy knew the future. Prophecy is far more about recognizing the present than it is about telling the future. When you read all the prophets, they're looking to a people who have gone wayward, as Paul's doing here, and they say, guys, you have forgotten the truth. And they speak Christ, or they prophesy about Christ, but they speak truth into their setting. And guess what? They're usually harmed for it. Um, To prophesy is very dangerous because people you prophesy to don't typically want to hear it. Right? And you have to usually take crazy steps, like Hosea marries a woman of whoredom, Gomer, you know, to prove, to, to carry out the prophecy of God, right? And, and of course, our very uh, sermon series based on Isaiah and, and the way he's having to say super hard things to a people who've walked away. And, and the two primary things that prophets are doing is they're warning and they're comforting. And yet, what Paul is saying is all of us are to be prophets. That means two things then. I should be prophetically speaking into the lives of people around me, the truths of Scripture, in a way that's loving and gentle and, you know, driven by love. All those, if you want to know if you're doing it well, go back to chapter 13. But also, if everyone's called to prophesy, am I able to receive it? Can someone come to me and say, hey, brother, like, I have something to tell you. I have some hard news. Um, You know, I've seen you and sin, you harm this, you know, am I able to receive that kind of care? When you dig into chapter 14, his point point is tongues are selfish, but prophecy builds up the church. It it restores the church. It brings order and it brings uh, flourishing, but that always happens, I think, through repentance, right? To come tell somebody we need to go this direction implies that we've been going the wrong direction, and that's a turn. So, that's the higher gift is prophecy. But where do we get the power for the prophecy? Where do we get the desire for that? Where does it come from? And it's in our passage. I want to just read the last few verses of, of chapter 13 where Paul says, look, in verse 12, I, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Now to look at a mirror means we see ourselves, our own reflection, and it's dim. And we don't really, and, and as a community, we're all looking at a photograph of ourselves and it's dim. He says, but then face to face, what's he saying? That, that my job, my hope, my goal is that love would drive me to see myself, we talked last week, in the position of righteous, but others. That it looks dim right now, but one day face to face. 
Now, if he ends by saying love um, hopes all things and, it, and love, you know, the, his point is I will not look at the people in my congregation critically if I'm driven by love. I'll, I'll look at them with hope and, and I'll dream for them. To the degree that I'm being ministered to, I'm going to want to minister to the people around me as an individual member of the body. He says, now we know in part, okay, what does he mean? We know theology. We know truth. Paul, I mean, arguably knows more than any of us. And in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, he says he, was taken, he knows a man taken up into the heavens. And I mean, he's had intimate visions and views of God. And yet he's got the humility to say, I don't know everything. What's his point? His point is two. One, one day, someday we'll know everything. But to the degree that we live out in community, we'll know more of God. Many of you have heard the story of C.S. Lewis who uh, had two friends. This isn't the Inklings, but it's a group. And they met and they had really vibrant spiritual conversations. And one of them ended up, died, passed away. And after the, a period of time and grief, he was going to come together with the third person. And he remembers thinking as he went to that meeting, I'll get more of this person because, you know, this other individual's now passed on. I'll, it'll be more of this person. And what he found was he got less of the third person because there was something that was brought out by both of them by the one who left, by the one who died. And that's true of the body of Christ. Like we know Jesus so much more fully when we're in a community that's different than ours. I mean, that's, Paul's constantly saying, if you read these passages, there's neither Jew or Greek, slave nor free. Other places he names different races and nationalities and men and women. What is he saying? He's saying, stop tribalizing. We need to want people that are different from us in what they look like, in cultural backgrounds, in, in spiritual expression, um, that should be a vibrant drumbeat of our soul because through that process, we're going to better know the God who has called us as a city, as a bride to himself. And that final line, he says this in verse, chapter 13, verse 12, then I shall know fully, and listen to it, even as I have been, past tense, fully known. That is the longing of your soul is to be fully known and fully loved, right? We're all born into a world looking for somebody, looking for us. The primary somebody is God, and we long to be face-to-face with him. But he promises and says the way he meets you in this season, and it will go on into the future, is also through the expression of his love to you and I through people that are also Christians, that are united in Christ. So it's uh, a few minutes left. We're almost done. Uh, just a few application questions. Um, and by the way, I'm just going to say this. In John 13, I talk about all the time, Jesus demonstrates this very process. He washes their feet. He resumes. And he says, you know, I've done this, that you would wash one another's feet. So in other words, when Peter finally allowed himself to be fully known by Jesus in that moment, he would then have the ability to turn and give that same care to a wayward brother or sister. And, and that's, that's the picture of the church. That's what it means to suffer with Christ. We, we suffer like he did by loving others who don't seem to deserve it and caring for them that are hard to love. And love drives us to do that. So here's my question to you, very practical. As we move into 2021, 
Our prayer is that the pandemic will um, go away. <laughs> we don't know when. It's not lost on me that the very week I'm bringing this, I feel very timely conversation is my first and hopefully last time to be just looking at a camera with not even one person other than Brent in the back on, in the sound booth. Uh, it, it's, it's a very isolating moment, and I'm very aware of the pandemic. What I'm talking now about is post-pandemic, but more importantly, what's in your mind and heart even in this season? Here are the questions. How involved are you in the church? And I, I mean the local church. If we think, well, I'm involved in the church universal, but I kind of pick and choose my tribe. That's what Paul's writing against. The universal church is powerful because of the local expressions of it, operating the ways they should, right? The church is to be a place where we have um, attunement and containment and repair. Uh, it's where we're known and loved, but also because we can't just bolt containment, we stay through hard things, we repair. We, we repent, we apologize, right? We take the sacrament uh, weekly eventually again to remind ourselves of the fact that we are not only in union with Christ, but we're in union with the body. Okay, how involved are you? Secondly, what would it take? This is a hard one. What would it take for you to want to leave? Like, do you have one foot in, one foot out? Do you have your backup plan? And again, if the grace isn't your place, I don't. That's I'd be sad. But maybe you're maybe you're tuning in from a different church, but or maybe you've decided you're going to join a different church. But when you join, and you vow, and you and you plug in, I'm just asking to to think: What would it take for me? Just what what sort of indiscretion would make me want to leave? There are appropriate reasons to leave, and I'm not saying that, but I am saying often we have wrong reasons. Um, can you be approached about sin patterns in your life? If a person in love prophesies one-on-one with you gently, are you someone that can receive that? Are you someone who can also go do that? How recently have you gone to someone in love to build them up? Again, to love them, not to confront, not to, to get on them, not to let them know they bothered you, but rather out of you've already forgiven uh, you've already prayed if they've harmed you, or maybe they haven't harmed you at all, but you've actually gone to them for their edification to help them. Do you know your own personal methods of pulling away? Like what are the ways you pull away? What What is it that makes you want to pull away, and how does it rear its ugly head, and have you ever faced those processes in your life? Because those are the precise reasons you're here. Like, right, we're here. Think about uh, a family who takes on a foster child or an adopted child, the child always exhibits um, behaviors that are part of the isolation, the abandonment, the harm. And the new family is like, we know that, but we're going to love you through that. And they don't let the child leave. They, the child has to stay. That's containment and repair. And that's really what the church should look like. Um, and then I guess finally, just do you know how important you are? There's not one member of this church who isn't as vital as everyone else. Uh, if you go back and read the passage, there's no hierarchy. We're all one. We're as strong as our weakest link, and we celebrate, as, as, you know, rejoice when all of us are doing well. And so that means we have to live in honesty and in community. That's what Jesus is teaching. So as important as it is that Jesus became flesh, uh, as important as it is that the Spirit dwells in us individually, I would say 
your personal expression of Christianity is not greater than your involvement in the local church. And I'm included. I, I opened up with my own uh, background. I'm, I'm still constantly trying to fight my orphan desire for isolation. Even as a pastor, how do I um, allow you to know me and how do I move toward you individually and corporately as we grow together? My prayer for us as we move toward 2021 and hopefully through the pandemic, whether that's in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, is that we would emerge stronger and more uh, in love with Jesus and his people than ever before. And that when we find the places where we don't feel love, we would actually turn to Jesus for healing. Who bothers you? Who are you irritated with? Who do you ignore? Who have you cut out? Lord Jesus, please heal those relationships. I would, I would just like to say this at the end because I thought of it and I think it's really powerful. And um, a lot of what I'm talking about really is conflict. In Philippians, one of the greatest you know, letters, it's a particular church. Um, you know, we have such amazing, rich theologies of the incarnation and, and Paul's pedigree and he counts all things loss. And by chapter four, he's talking about no, do not be anxious. And it, it's so rich. But right there at the beginning of chapter four, he entreats Eutychus and Syntyche, two women, to repair. And it, you're like, wait a minute. Well, they were named in an epistle that until we go home to be with the Lord, Christians will be reading and meditating on. That's how serious Paul takes conflict. And I would entreat you in this church, if you have conflict, come together, repair. Let's grow together. Let's love. That's where we will come on the other side of that with power to be whom God has called us to be as a congregation. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, everything that has been said comes from love. Uh, I believe, Lord, although I know I'm fallen, I believe that your word is clear, your spirit is present, that even through the technology that we're using, uh, I can't see one face other than my friend Brent who's with me. But Lord, we know that you use your body. You use your people. Uh, Lord, I asked Brent how we're going to put the video together, and he said his son, Micah. (laughs) He's the one that's been studying this stuff. Thank you, Jesus, for Micah and his gifting and that you use all of your body uh, for the edification of the whole. And Lord, where there are dissensions and where there's uh, gossip, when there's uh, hurt feelings, teach us to go to those people and to seek um, forgiveness, to seek wholeness, to seek uh, love and favor. And Lord, if there are some that don't even have a desire to do that, they just think, I don't want to do that, that's not who I am, maybe they need to come to you. Maybe they're not Christians. Maybe they're part of a community that they're just playing the game. Teach them to repent and to receive you. Because, Lord, when you dwell in us, there's a part of us, maybe not our full self, but a part of us that longs for love, that longs for unity. Let that be what reigns in this church for your glory. Amen.